Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for episode 42 of the Mark Guy Show. Uh, I want to talk about before getting into what I want to discuss. Please go out and subscribe on iTunes, any other podcast aggregator that you may use, Google Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever. There are a million different different clients out there. But please subscribe to the show. Please get in contact with me. If, you, if there's anything you'd like me to talk about, any recommendations you have for the show, I'd love to interact more with the people that are listening to this. Uh, you can reach me via Twitter, at Mark Geis, you know, my, just my first and last name, um, or comment on the website if you're accessing this through the website. I've had some people comment there and have a little back and forth with them in the, in the comments section. So however you want to get in contact with me, I'd, I'd really appreciate it. Whether you're challenging my ideas or thinking there are particular topics you like when I talk about more, should I focus more on on one set of issues rather than another, or am I missing something? Am I not covering something enough? I'd, I'd just love to hear that from you. So thank you for your continued support, and I'm going to keep trying to put these out regularly. I know I've slacked for the last couple of weeks, only put out a couple over the last couple of weeks, but have had some other priorities coming up, and I was in a hotel room with a with uh, with very thin walls for a week, and I really wasn't able to do a show in, in that hotel without bothering everybody else around me. You know, maybe they'd become big fans of the Mark Guy Show, but probably more likely they'd be they'd be calling down to the front desk and getting me in some trouble. So that was part of it, and I've been working on some other projects more over the last couple weeks, but. Had to get one out today. It was the big Donald Trump speech, uh, and I'm going to discuss that. Going to discuss also the news about what he's trying to do with the budget. There's not a ton of new news that's come out in terms of what tax policy is going to be. So I'm I'm really waiting with bated breath as to what what these huge reforms are going to be before I devote an entire episode to talking about it. But that's something I really would like to talk about because it's extremely important with with the substantial percentage of GDP that taxation takes up in this country, tax policy is huge. And, and and how taxes are targeted at particular groups or particular activities makes a huge difference in terms of how our economy works. So that's something I want to discuss, but we don't really have enough information yet to be able to discuss it in detail. I have discussed the border-adjusted tax a little bit and the problems with that and why I don't think it's good policy, but in terms of how Trump is going to change the the corporate income tax structure and how he's going to, to relieve the the burden of uh, the burden on middle class taxpayers, which is what he said in this speech tonight. We don't really know how he's going to do that yet. So when that comes up, I will discuss it. But that's not going to be a big topic of this show here today. So first, Trump came out with his advisory budget. And of course, this depends on Congress passing their own budget. This is not binding because Congress controls the purse strings of the government. But there are some interesting things here. So basically, what Trump proposed is to cut by $54 billion discretionary spending, um, non-defense discretionary spending, I should say, because defense also falls in that discretionary spending uh, category, and then all and then all non-discretionary spending. That's where your your Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid all come in. So it's kind of the those are the two buckets of federal spending, and this is all focused on the on the discretionary side. 
because on the non-discretionary side, Trump has said he doesn't want to touch it. Nobody wants to touch it in Congress. And I'm going to discuss that a little bit more after I discuss what his particular cuts are as to why we're not going to fundamentally change anything until we do start to attack that non-discretionary spending. So what's Trump? Well, what Trump is proposing here is a $54 billion cut in foreign aid, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, it looks like about a quarter maybe of, of the EPA's budget could be on the table for cuts here uh, and, and and some other agencies. Probably most agencies would would at least be cut to an extent. And then allocating that $54 billion to the Pentagon to defense spending or military spending, I should call it, because I think most of that military spending isn't actually going to defending the country. And if you're looking at so if you're looking at the at the spending that the government does, if you think about what a, what what the United States government is supposed to do, what we've given it permission to do through the Constitution, defense is probably its its primary responsibility. So probably a large percentage of its budget should be going to defense. But the issue is the budget is so large, it's so substantial that even a smaller percentage of that really bloated budget is more than than what I think in in the America the founding fathers envisioned defense spending would be. So now defense spending is proposed to go up to a little over 600 billion dollars, which I don't have the exact numbers here in front of me in terms of what everybody else spends, but I know that the typical number is the U.S. spends about as much as the next 10 countries combined. Sometimes it's more like eight or, or Maybe it's 11, you know, it's, it's usually somewhere in, in that range. But this government is proposing now to spend more on defense. And this is, this is a time where we're not on war footing. I know that we are in other countries, but there's not a major war that we're mobilizing to fight. You know, we're not mobilizing to fight World War III here. Though it seems to be the real war hawks who want to have the U.S. be able to fight... W- fight a war on two fronts at once to fight say Russia in one war and China in one war at the same time that's what that's what people really think and this is when the United States government is broke you know we don't have this money to spend I welcome the cuts to agencies I welcome the cuts to non-defense discretionary spending but you can't just go and then spend it elsewhere and I think there are a ton of cost savings to be had out there if you do start bringing the troops home. If you get the tens of thousands of troops in Germany and Japan and, and get them to come back home. And South Korea as well. We still have tens of thousands of troops there as well. You know, we cannot continue to, to fund the defense of the rest of the world when already the taxpayers here are stretched so thin. When already... The debt is running out of control. But I think talking about defense, and and this is the conversation most people are having about this, because I think it's becoming more and more accepted on both sides of the aisle that we do spend too much on the military. And saying that doesn't mean that you are anti-military or anti-defense or against our soldiers or anything like that. It just means that there's a certain amount that we should be spending, and this is certainly more than we should be spending. We start talking about Social Security and Medicare. 
until those programs are on the table, we are always going to be broke. We are going to be broke the rest of my life or until some sort of crisis happens and then we're forced to, to gut those programs, which will eventually happen. But nobody wants to touch these programs and it's because of the time horizons of, of these politicians are so short. You know, they're in office for four years or maybe six years or if they're, if they're getting multiple terms, maybe they're in for 15 or 20 years. But 15 or 20 years, there's a lot that can be done to rob future generations to benefit current generations in 15 to 20 years. There's a lot that can be done and you know that you're going to be out of office and you're not going to have to deal with those problems down the road. And that's what has been happening with Social Security and Medicare. And what the, what the Democrats are doing, what the left is doing, is they demonize anybody that even mentions cutting these programs as being against old people or being against poor people. It's an ad hominem attack against anybody that even suggests this. You know, Paul Ryan years ago suggested pretty tame changes to the program that, that would extend its solvency or the, these programs that would extend their solvencies. Nothing drastic whatsoever. You know, a slight decrease or a slight increase in the retirement age. Um, in, I think he proposed indexing it to a different, uh, different measure of inflation. And he was absolutely vilified for this. You know, he was called somebody that, that hates a majority of Americans, that, that does not understand anything about the struggles that Americans are facing. And th these kind of ad hominem attacks have to stop. They really do. Because these people, they're not looking at how the programs actually work. They're, what they're doing is they're taking in the, the storybook definition that was given to them in their middle school history class talking about how, well, this is just the government taking your money and, and putting it away and then giving it back to you when you retire. This is something that you've paid into and the money's going to be there for you to take it back out again. Well, that is not how it works. Not at all how it works. The money that you're, that you're putting in is going toward funding current retirees. And then when you retire, it's depending on another group of younger workers being able to pay to fund what you're now taking from them. And I recently read a book called The Nation of Takers, or A Nation of Takers, I'm sorry, by Nicholas Eberstadt. And this is a short little you know, 100, 120 page book, but he lays out the case for why entitlements are running out of control and it's, it's creating a class of people or multiple classes of people who are completely dependent upon the government for their well-being and taking away their independence and their freedom. But what stuck out to me most was there there was a rebuttal section at the end. So he actually printed one in particular. There were two rebuttals, but one of the rebuttals was kind of agreeing with him, but saying that he probably wasn't being alarmist enough. And the other one was saying that he's being too alarmist. And the point that this guy was trying to make, uh, Galston, William Galston, was that Basically, we're making we're making an intergenerational agreement here, where basically instead of you taking care of your parents when when they reach retirement, and then you know your kids taking care of you when you reach retirement, um, instead we're we're basically 
facilitating that through the state through taxation and as long as you know as long as one generation isn't taking more than a given one can give up and if a given generation is not taking more than what the previous generation had taken hopefully that made sense but it's as long as that's not happening as long as they're taking about the same amount about a, about a proportionate amount then this type of system can work and i don't necessarily disagree with him i don't think it's ethical to be facilitating that through force and by distributing the money through the government but even that hypothetical that he's talking about is just not true because each successive generation is taking more than what it put into the system and it's going to continue because people are going to keep living longer and people are going to keep voting for increases into what they receive and unfortunately retirees vote at far higher rates than the working population for whatever reason that is whether it's older people are more interested in politics or have more to gain from voting their given person into power but all of this works to destroying these types of programs and the hypothetical that gelson's talking about is just not true it, it just is not it is not true in reality if we had a system like that the finances of social security and medicare would not be running off the rails you know it would not be bankrupting this country right now and that is what is happening no matter how much people want to put their head, heads in the sand and not think about it and think oh you know maybe social security will be cut a little bit by the time i get it but it's a good program i i, I don't want older people living destitute living in the streets well that's already happening you know pe older people who rely on social security think about the percentage of their income over their over their working lives that was taken to go into this program and how they retire and a lot of them are trying to live on $15,000 a year, $20,000 a year and they're living in in these small apartments, they have to sell their houses oftentimes especially if one of their if one of the spouses dies, if it was a married couple and th these people are not living well. You know, social security does not give people a dignified retirement. It was supposed to be when it was first instituted a a supplemental form of income. And, and for a lot of people it is, but also life expectancy has, ha, has gone up. Life expectancy was about 65 at the time when the program was put into place. So half of all people that paid into this would not collect it. And then of course, Medicare was instituted decades later, but it's a similar idea. Um, life expectancy has continued to rise and the age at which you can start collecting on these programs really has not shifted with increases in life expectancy but even let's say that somehow by some miracle we do figure out how to how to stabilize these two programs and we do make some tweaks and whatever they probably increase the payroll tax as much as i would absolutely hate to see that because it's already exorbitantly high to begin with but imagine they do make some changes to make these programs solvent over the long term by some miracle. The same incentives will continue to be present for both voters and politicians. Voters want something for nothing, and that's how a lot of people vote, whereas politicians want to give something for nothing, or at least want to appear that they're giving something for nothing to those same voters who are demanding it. Both of them have a vested interest in doing that. I think you'll continue to see these programs, even if, even if they were stabilized today, decades down the line, we'd be facing the same problem again. I think the very existence of these programs 
the very existence of these redistributionist programs are the problem. And I think we need to work toward eradicating them. And to, to work toward eradicating them is to place certain caps. And what I have proposed, you know, I, I don't think I've talked about it necessarily anything exactly on this show, but phasing out the program over time. And it would be expensive, of course, but not as expensive as keeping it in place over the long term. So basically what I would propose is you you end all Medicare and Social Security for people under, say, the age of 45. You can maybe even make the age lower, maybe 40. Uh, so they no longer, nobody any longer has to pay payroll taxes. And you roll all of the current obligations under Medicare and Social Security. You can probably phase them out over time, say for anybody over that age. So people between 45 and 55 would get some sort of reduced amount of, of Social Security and Medicare People from the age of 55 to, to 65 or, you know, 55 in retirement age, they would get their, their full benefits or close to it. So you gradually wind it down. You still have the obligations there. So they'd be being funded through general taxation rather than through the payroll tax. But at least you finally get this thing under control and you see there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I think that's what needs to happen. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see young people struggle more and more. And I get that this isn't this isn't fair for people under the age of 45. For people under that that cutoff date, they're going to be still paying to fund their parents and grandparents' retirement and they're not going to have something there to collect once they get there. But do you really want to have something there to collect that requires now your kids and your grandkids to be stolen from in order to fund your retirement? Because that's exactly what's happening. And I think some generation has to be willing to step up and bite the bullet to end these heinous programs. And maybe that can be our generation. I, I don't think it's going to be, but somebody has to do it or it's going to bankrupt the entire country. And we're well on that, we're well on that way and no politician seems to really be willing, well, no prominent mainstream politician at least, seems to be willing to put these things on the table. So... I don't know if that message would resonate with people. It probably does. And I bet most of the people listening to that are, <laughs> they felt some sort of pain because it's so, you know, it's so hammered into us that Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, these are a part of American society. That These are necessary for people to live a dignified retirement. Well, if you actually go and look at the finances of these programs and look at how they work, these are not hallmarks of American society. These are perversions of American society. And they cause intergenerational conflict. And they cause, they cause young people to resent older people. And we don't want this intergenerational conflict. It's the same thing that when we talk about redistribution from rich to poor, or middle classes to poor, or the rich to the middle classes. It causes, it causes conflict between classes. We don't want class warfare. We do not want generational warfare. And that's what these types of programs, these types of redistributionist programs through the state, this is what happens. People resent each other. And I don't want to see that happen. And I don't want to, I don't want to see people use the voting box, use the, use the voting booth to get themselves more at the hands of other people, to be taken more from other people. And I think that's exactly what's been happening with Social Security and Medicare for years. 
And I think not enough young people understand the program, even though most young people will probably say, I'm either collecting a fraction of what they're telling me I'm going to be able to collect, or I'm not going to be able to collect it at all. I think most people are waking up to that. But they still don't understand exactly how dire the situation is and how there's no money in the Social Security Trust Fund. And the government itself is broke, so it's not like there's an account there waiting to be taken from. It's it's now relying entirely on current workers to fund current retirees. And that situation is only going to get worse as the baby boomers retire here. The demographics are horrible for these programs right now. It's and it's really a it's really a coming storm. I don't want to spend this whole time talking about this, but if we're having any sort of budget discussion and and these programs are not on the table, then all we're doing is treading water. And probably worse than that, we're probably not even treading water. We're gradually going deeper and deeper underwater, getting further and further from the surface. So I had to go onto that rant because I think talking about defense spending, although it is important, I think those are the three pillars of spending that you have to talk about. But everybody seems to have defense spending be on the table, but nobody seems to have Medicare or Social Security out there on the table. And the fourth bucket, the non-defense discretionary spending, that's truly a drop in the bucket compared to everything else. You know, I'm not saying I disagree with it. I would, I would like to see it happen. I would like to see cuts made where cuts can be made. And there are substantial cuts to be made in non-defense discretionary spending. But that's not really going to do much. Another thing that was on the table is foreign aid, which I wanted to talk about really quickly. And I know that it's it's not a substantial amount, just like I said, and that's part of that, that non-defense discretionary spending category. But I think foreign aid is perverse as well. And I think we we like to think of what the intents of our spending are. So people talk about cuts to the EPA mean that we're necessarily going to have dirtier air and dirtier water and that the environment is going to degrade. When you look at the EPA's record isn't very good. And there's not a whole lot of evidence there to say that that's what's going to happen if cuts are made. But people think that if we're spending money for this to happen, this is the intent, that that is going to be what happens. But governments all throughout their history have shown that that doesn't happen. And oftentimes there are unintended negative consequences that unless you think about things a step or two or three ahead, you're not going to think about those unintended consequences. But that's what happens with foreign aid. People think that, oh, we're giving money to these countries and it's going to help countries poorer than the United States be able to feed their people and um, to be able to live with a little more dignity than they would be able to otherwise. But usually what's happened with foreign aid is it's gone to foreign governments and it's kept corrupt, violent regimes in power overseas. That's really been the history of foreign aid. And there are some good resources out there. I, I should try to go back and look at some of the things I've read on that and post a couple in the suggested readings, reference articles, part of this, uh, this podcast post. But foreign aid does not do what it's intended to do. I'm not saying all foreign aid has had clearly negative consequences, but on that, I think it has had negative consequences. And that this is on the table is a good sign. But I think we need to carry that sort of logic forward to defense spending because once again adding more dollars to the to to the military budget does not necessarily mean that we're getting incrementally more safe and 
what's really happened, it seems like the more that we spend, the less safe that we get because the more resources there are out there that are ready to be deployed at the first sign of conflict to go out and get boots on the ground and get us involved in these wars that I think most of us can agree on. I'm sure most of the people listening to this show can agree have made us less safe. So um, the fact that foreign aid was on the table, that was good. Trump has been critical of foreign aid. One of the things I've, I've agreed with him on so I wanted to discuss the speech. That was what I talked about first. I went on that whole Social Security, Medicare uh, rant there, but it was necessary to talk about when we're discussing the budget. Some of the things that he talked about here, I I think this is a pretty good speech in terms of rhetoric. I don't think it was good in terms of content. I don't think any of Trump's speeches really have been good in terms of content, but he got a, a pretty high favorability rating from CNN. I forget exactly what the percentages were, but I think it was 57% of people said that he he did a good job, and I think 21% said that he didn't do a good job, and 21% were on the fence about it. So that's a pretty high ap- approval rating for a speech. Um, probably the most important parts that I was looking at were what was he going to say about Obamacare? which as a lot of people have a lot of people have talked about it seems like they're trying to keep the quote unquote good parts of Obamacare without actually getting rid of it and um, basically what this is going to happen or basically what's going to happen and you can go back to, to prior episodes to get a more detailed look at this but Obamacare actually does make sense because what happens is if you're trying to if if you're trying to force something so in this case if you're trying to force people to buy health insurance well first what you're trying to do is you're trying to you're trying to force insurance companies to insure people that otherwise would not be insurable people that have pre-existing conditions so in order to get insurance companies to be willing to do that you now have to force everybody to buy insurance, even people that do not believe they need insurance because they're healthy, they're young, they're not likely to get sick. You know, maybe at most they'd be just looking for a catastrophic plan, people that never go to the doctors. So you need to force all those people to pay in and basically be captive customers of the insurance companies. And what they do is they, they raise the premiums on those people versus what they normally would pay if they were trying to get a plan in order to subsidize the others. So if you know if you want to have this system where people with pre-existing conditions can be covered and basically be funded by others, Obamacare does make sense. I think it's bad policy. I think it's it's not insurance forcing people to subsidize others and I hate the use of force in order to get people to pay for something that they wouldn't otherwise pay for. Uh, so I I think it's a horrible it's a horrible piece of legislation but it does make sense but you can't take out some of those parts and have the rest of it happen so you can't take out the the mandate for people to buy insurance because then the only people that are going to be left buying insurance are those that are getting a free lunch those that are trying to get a subsidized rate and then what's going to happen is premiums are going to skyrocket and these insurance companies are going to go out of business because yeah yeah maybe they'll be offering the same the same premiums to everybody that's now trying to get insurance through them, but you've taken out all those high quality customers that have been subsidizing the lesser quality customers, the customers that otherwise would be uninsurable. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. You need a full repeal of Obamacare. You need to get all of it out of there. You need to get the, the pre-existing condition 
portion out. You need to get the individual mandate out. But what he's trying to do here is toe that line and keep the good parts and get rid of the bad parts because people seem to like the pre-existing condition part because people are getting something for nothing. And then people hate the mandate part because there's force involved. But they're inter, they're interrelated. They're intertwined. You can't have one without the other. So what Trump said on Obamacare is Obamacare is collapsing and we must act decisively to protect all Americans. Action is not a choice. It is a necessity. So I'm calling on all Democrats and Republicans in the Congress to work with us to save Americans from this imploding Obamacare disaster. Here are the principles that should guide the Congress as we move to create a better health care system for all Americans. First, we should ensure that Americans with pre-existing conditions have access to coverage and that we have a stable transition for Americans currently enrolled in the health care exchanges. Secondly, we should help Americans purchase their own coverage through the use of tax credits and expanded health savings accounts. But it must be the plan they want, not the plan forced on them by the government. Thirdly, we must give our great state governors the resources and flexibility they need with Medicaid to make sure no one is left out. Fourthly, we should implement legal reforms that protect patients and doctors from unnecessary costs that drive up the price of insurance and work to bring down the artificially high price of drugs and bring them down immediately. Finally, the time has come to give Americans the freedom to purchase health insurance across state lines, creating a truly competitive national marketplace that will bring costs way down and provide far better care. So, delving into that a little bit, there are some good things there and some bad things. I, I like talking about expanding uh, health savings accounts. I think being able to give people money to spend it how they see fit, it, it, it helps, first of all, introduce some price sensitivity or some price elasticity to the healthcare market, which right now where everything is covered through insurance and not a whole lot of people have high deductible plans, most people aren't price sensitive. So they're doing whatever their insurance allows them to do and it's all covered through the insurance companies and the providers. But expanding the use of health savings accounts allows people to make their own choices and it will it will put some downward pressure, or at least, you know, stop prices from increasing as rapidly as they have been. Uh, so I think that part was good. But you saw there when he first talked about pre-existing conditions. That was the first thing he talked about after mentioning Obamacare and that he wants those people with pre-existing conditions to still have access to coverage, but still take away the individual mandate. And I think you cannot have one without the other. Uh, he also talks about Medicaid. So he, he hasn't had Medicaid on the table at all to cut. Once again, I don't know why this is a federal issue with, with money f- funneling through Washington, D.C. and be- being given out to the states. At least if it has to be done that way, it should be done out in block grant style. And it seems like Trump is more sympathetic to that view. So I guess if you have to have it, it's the lesser of two evils. But at the same time, Medicaid has not helped things. Medicaid, just like Medicare, they, they've tried to fix prices and all it's done is take away the choices of people that are relying on Medicare for their health coverage because a lot of providers now will not take Medicaid. He also talked about working to bring down the artificially high price of drugs and bringing them down immediately. And when he talks like that, it sounds like trying to set prices through the government, trying to price fix through the government. And I've taken Bernie Sanders to task on this before, but this kind of idea that that trying to force prices down in pharmaceuticals is a good thing 
I think is is wrong. I think you need to let the market dictate what people are willing to pay for for these drugs and certain drugs are going to be very expensive. Just like if you think about technology, certain technology is very expensive when it first comes out. And basically what happens is the rich people that are willing to go out and willing to to go out and get something because they want to be the first one to have it. They're basically funding the research and development that allows those costs to come down over time. And the same thing happens with pharmaceuticals. When, when prescription drugs first come out, oftentimes they're very expensive. You have to pay off the research and development. These companies have put a ton of money into them. And maybe everybody cannot afford those given drugs. But if you didn't have the ability to charge that high price in the first place, then many of those companies would never have put the money into research and development to develop those drugs. And so those drugs never would have existed. So if I'm, if I'm looking at the choice between some people getting a drug that only came into existence because of the high prices that they were able to charge or nobody having access to that drug because it never was developed in the first place. I'm going to choose the first one every time. And there's not, I don't think there's a third option where you can have those be developed and price fix them at a certain point, you know, a certain artificial arbitrary point. And I think that's what a lot of people want to do. That's what a lot of people think the government has the ability to do. But once again, there are unintended consequences there that I don't think people realize. And it's impossible to go back and look at all the drugs that have not come into effect because of all the FDA's requirements. Because companies looked at it and thought, okay, we can charge probably this amount when this drug comes to market, but we've got to go through 10 years of testing to get there. It's going to cost us $2 billion and we're not going to be able to recoup our costs. So we're not going to go through the process. It's impossible to quantify how many times that has happened and how many drugs that could be saving people's lives have not been brought into effect because of both the FDA's onerous requirements and the price-fixing nature of, of American healthcare right now. Because they do try to do that through Medicare. They try to fix prices, and it distorts everything. It screws everything up, just like price-fixing always does. So they've tried to do this, and it hasn't worked. Um, but I think this this thought that through the federal government, through the state, that that we can that we can just bring down prices for everybody is is asinine. It's absolutely it's absolutely insane. I think, and a lot of people think this way. A lot of people think that the government has the ability to do this, but I think even if they are able to do it, there are a lot of unintended consequences, a lot of unintended negative consequences that people are not thinking about. So Trump still is really frustrating me on health care because he says some good things, you know, some market-oriented things. He also discussed in that quote that I read the freedom to purchase health insurance across state lines. I think that's great. I think all the everything we can do to introduce more choice to health care will force down prices, will bring down prices, or at least level them off um, and give people more options. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. That's that's the beauty of today's modern world in so many different aspects is you have you have 20 different phone companies to choose from, cell phone companies. Um, you have probably 50 different companies producing the cell phones themselves. Um, and the beauty of that is you can choose exactly what fits you. Everybody's trying to take a different niche of the market and there's something out there that fits exactly what you're looking for. You know, whether you're someone at the low end, someone that's just trying to buy something with, with 
base functionality there are multiple companies competing in that area for your business if you're somebody that that wants the top of the line you know there are companies that are competing for that share of the market and that's what we should be having in healthcare as well there should not be these one size fits all programs just like in everything else there's not there's not a one size fits all cell phone that all of us can purchase and be happy with you know i may not need the top of the line cell phone i'm I tend to be a person that's that's down in that bargain area that's just getting something that has the base functionality, not looking for the fancy brand or anything. But I feel like what they're trying to do with health insurance is they're trying to make all of us buy that fancy brand of cell phone. They're trying to force all of us to pay $600 for a cell phone rather than allowing us to self-segregate ourselves and have some of us buying the $100 cell phone. And some of us buying the $300 cell phone, the mid-range, or some of us buying the 600 And some of us, if we really want to, buying the eight dollars or $900 cell phone that has all the bells and whistles. That's what should be happening in healthcare. That's what's happening in every other industry that's not heavily regulated, heavily influenced by government. And I hope that we can move in that direction. But he says some good things that, that, that make you start to think, okay, we're moving down that path. But other things that just, that just make you shake your head. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I don't think Obamacare is going anywhere. They're probably going to push it out at least to next year and be able to campaign on it again. The Republicans be able to campaign on it again and try to, you know, try to fend off the Democrats. But I don't know. The healthcare policy in this country is not something to to be proud of or <laughs> or to follow and, and and be happy about. It's it's very frustrating to follow. So the other thing I wanted to talk about from his speech was his talk on trade. And this is nothing new. This is really par for, par for the course. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me, with his uh, with his trade policy. But he he talked about Harley-Davidson. He, he'd met with officials and workers from a great American company, Harley-Davidson. In fact, they probably displayed five of their magnificent motorcycles made in the USA on the front lawn of the White House. At our meeting, I asked them, how are you doing? How is business? They said that it's good. I asked them further how they were doing with other countries, mainly international sales. They told me, without even complaining, because they've been mistreated for so long that they've become used to it, that it is very hard to do business with other countries because they tax our goods at such a high rate. They said that in one case, another country taxed their motorcycles at 100%. They weren't even asking for change, but I am. I believe strongly in free trade, but it also has to be fair trade. And I hate this free trade, fair trade dis distinction. So it's basically saying that because another country is screwing over their own people. Because by taxing U.S.-made motorcycles at 100% or any foreign-made motorcycles at 100%, it means that their domestic manufacturers are, are sealed off from competition and prices are going to be higher for those consumers than they would be otherwise if there was not that exorbitant tax on, on imported motorcycles. So these governments are hurting their own people through this policy. But what does Donald Trump want to do? He wants to now hurt our own citizens by placing those same restrictions on us here so that it's fair. It's like, let's say that I'm taxed 15% at work and I have a coworker that's taxed at 12%. I said, how could... That person will only be taxed 12% at 12 when I'm being taxed at 15%. Instead, I want us to both be taxed at 20% so that it's fair. That's the same type of logic that we're using here 
on trade. And, and we can't extend the same things that people have come to accept when we're talking about domestic manufacturing or, or, or doing business domestically. And now when you, when you extend it to foreigners, people completely get screwed up and they think that protectionism is, protectionism is the way to go. And it really isn't. I know that Trump ran on that and people were all for it. They think that that's the way to bring back American jobs. And there will be some visible jobs that either stay in the U.S. or come back to the U.S. that had left. But what's going to be hidden, once again, this is very similar to, to the point I was making earlier about unintended consequences. And oftentimes you can't see them. You, know, you can't see all the drugs that haven't come into existence because of attempted price fixing or because of FDA regulation. Um, you're not going to be able to see all the little raise, all the little raises in prices that are going to happen due to these types of policies, if they do go through, if, if high tariffs are placed on certain goods, if there is a border-adjusted tax. Prices across the border are going to go up, at least slightly. And maybe a lot of people won't even notice it necessarily every time they buy something. But in aggregate, they're going to feel the pinch. Because people are already pinched in the U.S. That's one of the reasons why Trump won. People were frustrated. They, they did not feel like like the economy was working for them, like their standards of living were getting any better. And they vented their frustration by voting for Donald Trump. Now, of course, a lot of what Trump advocates, I think, is going to make matters worse for those exact people. But that's why he won, because the economy is not good. No matter what all the, all the Obama fanboys want to say, the economy is not good. And the economy was not good under the Obama regime. They pushed off a bubble onto a new administration, and now it's just a matter of time until that bubble bursts again. But I would love to see some more people come out and be up in arms about this because it is something that's going to affect all of us. We all rely on imported goods. And the poorer that you are, the less, the less money that you have to spend, probably the more reliant you are on foreign goods and the more that these tariffs are going to hurt you. So... This is, this is something to watch. There was no new information here. These are things he said a hundred times, so I'm not bringing out any sort of groundbreaking news that he broke in, um, in this speech. But it is something to keep thinking about and to keep pointing out over and over again that Trump's aversion to fair trade is dangerous, and we should be opposing him on this. Um, there are a lot of reasons to oppose him. I don't think that a lot of the reasons being brought up by the resist movement or the resistance movement, whatever you want to call them, really have a lot of uh, validity. And I think it's masking people that legitimately want to disagree with policies that Trump is promoting when you have this whole background chorus of people just shouting that he's a, a racist and a bigot. That's not getting us anywhere. And that's not really any sort of, that's not a real criticism of Donald Trump. And those words have lost so much meaning because of people throwing them around in every situation, oftentimes where there there is nothing related to race. Most of the times there most of the time there isn't anything related to race and people are just looking for a reason to make it about race or to make it about hating a marginalized group. Um, but it takes away from the ability to actually talk about the policies there and the policies that we disagree with. And like every politician there are some good things there. There's some reasons, I, I suppose, to be optimistic about Donald Trump. But there are a lot of reasons to be pessimistic. More reasons to be pessimistic than optimistic, of course. But until we can have actual rational discussions about these types of things, then nothing's going to change. And the more that these people are thrown around, the, 
the words racist and, and bigot and sexist and homophobic and anti-Semitic and all, all, all of those, the more that that happens, the less we're going to be able to have actual conversations about the merits of free trade or healthcare policy or any, anything like that. So hopefully we can keep the conversation on those tracks and not continually get derailed by other people that are resisting Trump just by trying to shout him down or just by trying to, to continually call him a racist. So I think that's all I'll talk about today. I definitely want to have another one out later this week. I have a lot to talk about. I have quite a few things on the list that I wanted to discuss last week when I wasn't able to because of my hotel situation. But thank you again for listening. I really appreciate the support and have a fantastic week. Mm-hmm.